0: Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. With me on the show today is Monique Jefferson, the Chief People Officer of Community Preservation Corporation, a community development financial institution within the multifamily affordable housing sector. This is part of our Connex Executive Insights series brought to you by Connex Partners. Connex Partners is the number one executive network for HR and healthcare professionals. Connex connects business leaders from across the U.S., helping them solve their greatest challenges together. Monique, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Community Preservation Corporation, and your role there.
1: Sure. So hello, everyone. Uh, My pronouns are she and her, and I am an African-American woman, proudly from New York City. I am married. I am the mom of two teenage girls. And I reside in Brooklyn, New York. So for those of you out there from Brooklyn, I give you a shout. In addition to being a CDFI, we're a non-profit lending institution within the multifamily affordable housing sector. As chief people officer, I'm responsible for setting the human capital agenda, as well as implementing our strategic priorities, which primarily focus on culture, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and also talent development.
0: Given that hybrid work and scheduling flexibility are here to stay, how do leaders need to rethink management in order to get the most from their teams? This is such a hot question. And working with a lot of executives, boy, the, the response to hybrid ranges from what we see from Elon Musk to other clients who just think this is the best way to work ever and can't believe that we had to go to offices for these decades prior to now. Right. Listen, I approach this from a
1: very practical standpoint.
0: I fundamentally
1: believe that the behaviors and the practices and the way managers and leaders operated prior to the pandemic, it shouldn't change. It hasn't changed. It, those same behaviors and practices are required. So if you were a strong leader or manager prior to the pandemic, you should still be operating and behaving the same way now. And so what I do think it's required is that we just have to be more intentional. Intentional is a, is a key word for me because now that we are in a hybrid environment, which I think is the best of both worlds, we're always going to have employees in our workforce who may feel that they want to continue to come in and be here physically in an office space 100% of the time. We're also going to have population that wants to be 100% remote. Like I hear employees all the time and say, I never want to step foot in an office again. And if I don't, that's okay, right? So that's why I think hybrid is the best of both worlds because you're meeting employees where they're at and you're providing that flexibility, which I think is so desperately needed. So now because of that, it requires our leaders and our managers to be a bit more intentional around how they lead. So the same behaviors and practices, particularly if you were a strong manager or leader, still apply, but you just have to be intentional around how you apply those practices and approaches. So I'll give you an example. So pre-pandemic, you're used to having meetings in person, right, in the office, just physical meetings. Now, post-pandemic, and we have these hybrid environments, We have to be more intentional in thinking about, okay, when we're going to have a meeting now, when are you having? When are you scheduling? Are you scheduling a meeting on a day that you have asked everyone to come into the office? Or if you have people dispersed, are you making sure that even though someone is remote, they feel that they can participate and actively engage in the meeting even though they're not in the room? So small things like making sure that you have closed caption, So that if people miss words and miss what's being said, they can see it on their screen. One of the things that I did is a small change. One of the things I did when I introduced myself, I said what my pronouns were. I'm an African-American female. Where do I live? And so that, again, from a diversity lens, it's also speaking to people who are different. may have visual challenges, hearing challenges. And so it's how you communicate and how you operate. And making sure that you are meeting people where they're at and connecting to the diversity that is on your team. If you also have parents, one of the things that I experienced with the previous team, the majority of people on my team were parents and school-age children. So I was very intentional and conscious not to schedule our team meetings at two thirty, three o'clock, once a week, because I knew that that was the hour where the parents on my team had to step away pick up their children or meet their children from school, give them a snack, get them settled with their homework. And so being conscious and intentional of that, tried to pick a time that worked for everyone on the team so that we could all be present and connected and not have any distractions. So that's why I say intentional is the key word. Managers have to really be intentional and then also create opportunities for individuals to connect whether that's in the virtual world or whether that's physically in the office, being intentional and creating those opportunities for people to connect. Those were the things that we had in place prior to the pandemic. So managers who communicated with their teams, spoke with their teams, was very mindful and intentional around who was on their team, what are their needs, and tried to meet their needs. Managers who did that before, you still have to continue to do that. You just need to think about it a little bit differently And be very intentional in your approach.
0: One thing I hear is a change in mindset slightly moving away from when you're at work, you're ours, you're 100% focused on work, to it's part of the workday. If you were a parent, you probably have a child coming home. Now, frankly, if you were in the office, you were probably checking your phone to make sure your child arrived safely and got started with their homework or whatever they're doing. Now we just acknowledge that, in fact, caring for our children is something we do during the course of our business day because their schedule doesn't happen to match ours. The intentionality sounds like it's also acknowledging the reality of the cadence of their lives, not the we own you from eight to six.
1: That's absolutely right. And I just use the parents as an example, but we should really think about caregivers very broadly because I know that I'm part of that sandwich generation. So I know many of us are also caring for our parents. So that also applies as well. What's key is communication. You have to have that dialogue between the manager and the employees so that you're understanding how do you work best? What are the supports the resources that you need to be present, to do your best work, and to be highly productive, whether that's first thing in the morning, in the middle of the day, or late in the evening. So that the leader understands that for everyone on their team. So that they can operate in a way so that everybody is being able to show up and be their best, right? So that requires communication, really understanding their needs, and it also requires being intentional around the approach
0: that you're taking. I really appreciate the shift in focus because at least for me, my schedule is different than it was because I do happen to work late at night. I appreciate that some of the folks on my team also work late at night. So I know Dan, our producer is generally online at 10 o'clock at night. And if there's something I need from him, I know that that's his window. Yeah. Being a shift from expecting people to be on at eight o'clock. And if you're not on at eight, you're bad.
1: Same with me. Like one of the things I have a habit of whenever I move to a new organization. So I only been at CPC for about four months. I've made two transitions in the past two and a half years during the pandemic. But one of the things that I did both times is up front in the first meeting, I asked the team, what is your preferred communication style? What do you need? How do you work best? And I explained to them, I said two things. I am better in the latter part of the day in the evenings. I'm not a morning person, although I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm not a morning person but I'm better in the evening. I have people on my team who are quite the opposite. They love the mornings, but they're not evening people. It's usually around nine o'clock when everybody's settled, getting ready for bed. I may log off between like six and nine and then come back on in the evening. Or my kids are athletes. I'm a track mom. When it's peak season, I do my best to try to be present at their competition. And so if that means that I've got to leave and I'm out of pocket, from like 2.30 to 5 o'clock because I went to a meet, I'll let the team know and then I'll say, look, at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock, I'm going to be back on. If, in, if, if you need to reach me, you know, this these are the best times to reach me and vice versa. I want them to communicate the same to me. But what I've also told them because I recognize depending on where employees are at in their career, they sometimes feel this sense of urgency or obligation that, oh my gosh, I got a note from Monique at 9 or 10 o'clock at night. I have to respond and I have to have an answer. And I'm like, absolutely not. If it is that urgent, not only will I let you know and I'll label it as such, but I'm probably not going to send an email. I'm going to pick up the phone and call you. And what we're doing is not brain surgery. So I can't imagine anything that is quite that pressing and urgent that I'm going to have to disturb you and call you at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. And if it is, it's probably going to be a very rare occurrence. But having those conversations, it's like the work-life integration, right? Understanding where everybody's at, what their needs are, because that also translates to a happy employee. It ties to engagement and it ties to productivity. And you're going to get more out of your employee. And they're also going to be loyal and more inclined to stay. I hope we're coming off of the great resignation or what I like to call the great reshuffle. There is a segment that exited the workforce completely, and it unfortunately has a disproportionate impact on women in the workforce. But generally speaking, I like to say it was a reshuffle because people were just moving from one organization to another. And a lot of it had to do with flexibility. So that's the other key word that I'll say. It's being intentional. And it's also flexibility. People want flexibility. And it also speaks to this work-life integration. Those are the two things. If you really look at why over the past two, two and a half years, why people left, Compensation and money, I would have to say, probably wasn't in the top three to five of their list. It just wasn't. It was around flexibility. Do I feel a sense of connection and commitment to the organization? Am I enjoying the work that I'm doing? And the way that you achieve that engagement and that loyalty from an employee goes back to what I was saying before around how you lead, how you manage. Are you being intentional around your approach
0: and providing them the flexibility? So let me ask a question then. This came up for me this week in our organization, transparency. So my calendar is available to everyone, in part because there are lots of days that I am literally booked eight hours straight and I'm having to step away from meetings to use the restroom. So during those days, nobody will get a response from me. And other days when I'm working at my desk, I respond right away. So I don't want someone to be expecting a response and not hear from me for 10 hours and have that impact their ability to get their work done. So I make my schedule available, including I do yoga in the evening. So if I have a 430 yoga class, it's on my calendar as yoga, not meeting with Fred or something. I don't conceal what I'm up to. My life happens to be fairly straightforward. I'm not doing anything nefarious, so I don't have to make stuff up. What's your perspective on that for people in larger organizations? And one of the issues our security person brought up is, is it safe to let everyone know? Now, frankly, I don't want people working for or with me that I think it's unsafe to let them know I'm at yoga. Employees need to do what they're
1: comfortable in. So not everybody is comfortable being that transparent. And particularly, I have experienced this as well as observed this being a woman of color. There are some that feel if they are that transparent, that they will be impacted negatively or to be frowned upon. So you mentioned yoga. So another thing that I think the pandemic has taught us and coming out of the pandemic is we need to do more around self-care and wellness whether it's mental health and wellness, physical wellness, a lot of the workforce experienced high levels of burnout and stress. For some, working at home and being remote blurred the lines between work and home. At least when we were coming in, most of us had a start and an end time. Even if it was like nine, 10 o'clock at night, there was still a start and an end time. You had to leave the office, go home, go to bed, and get up and do it all over again next the lines were a little bit more defined. Whereas due to the pandemic, that line was blurred a lot. Your work colleagues were coming into what, for some, what felt as their safe space, right? Your home is your safe space. You don't feel like you have to put on a mask or behave differently or act differently in your home with your family, what have you. But then because of the pandemic and these Zoom meetings and put your screen on, you're letting people into what for some was their safe, sacred space. Getting back to what I was saying before, for some, they don't want that level of transparency. For some, they're not comfortable because they feel that based on their experiences, it came back and they feel impacted them in some negative way. It's five o'clock, so-and-so is going to their yoga class or so-and-so has to go pick up the kids and in some instances, it caused resentment in the workplace because someone that was single and maybe didn't have any kids, the manager was unintentionally going to that person more because they assumed or knew that they were available because they weren't a parent or they didn't have a commitment or caregiver versus going to that other person that they knew was because that person probably communicated, was clear around what their boundaries were, and what their commitments were outside of work. So I have heard that employees feel that they were negatively impacted and they might have missed out on opportunities, whether that was career opportunities, opportunities for a project or work related because of their other commitments outside of work as a caregiver or because of their commitment to self-care. So my take on that is it's up to the employee. Whether or not they're comfortable having that level of transparency, I do think you should still block your calendar and indicate if you're available or not. But the level of detail that you allow, I think, is, you know, really based on the employee. But what I do appreciate and what I see more of now is managers being more understanding and being more open and understanding the importance of self-care and overall wellness coming out of the pandemic because of the high levels of stress and burnout that have been experienced because those lines between working from home and being in the office have been blurred and employees struggled with disconnecting.
0: That's a great lead into the idea of empathetic leadership as an aspect of meeting employees where they are, but that's different than sympathetic leadership. Can you walk us through the differences and some of your insights into how to handle these differences?
1: For some, empathy and sympathy might look very similar, but it is not. And I will give you an analogy of the difference between the two. You have an employee that has a problem, a challenge, they're in crisis, and they're down in a ditch, they're in a hole, and you're standing as the manager, the leader, on top of that ditch or that hole looking down. Empathy, you will hear them out, you will help them figure out a plan or a way to pull them out of the hole or to get them through whatever their challenge or their problem. was. Whereas if you cross that line from empathy to sympathy, if you're a sympathetic leader, guess what? You're going to jump down in the hole with them and they're going to continue to wallow and continue to spin and swirl and they will be able to move forward and to come out of it and come up with a solution to address what their problem. So that is the difference between being an empathetic leader, listening, understanding, maybe even sharing your own similar experience with them to help them to kind of come up with a solution and move through whatever the challenge is versus being a sympathetic leader, which is where you're listening, but maybe you're relating and connecting with them too much where you're in the problem or in the situation with them instead of helping them try to move through it and come at it,
0: so almost the distinction between a coach and a friend. as a friend, I tend to really want to connect with people and support through that. yeah, I want to say I'm the Bill Clinton line. I feel your pain. There's an amount of I feel your pain that's helpful to resonate with someone. And then there's the, yeah, let me come over to your house and clean your kitchen while you're taking care of your kids, which is kind of pulls me out of doing my job.
1: Now, in both examples of both situations, in the beginning, what's consistent is that you have to listen. You have to allow some space. You have to create some space and allow some space for the employee to get their emotions out, have a good cry or get their feelings out or whatever that is off their chest. I think that is the same in both. But then the difference is if you're being empathetic at some point through a series of questions and through connecting with the employee. And like I said, whether that's using your own experience to try to relate to them. But at some point you influence them. And you counsel them to try to get them to move into the solution phase and to figure out how can we address this? How can we fix it? Another tip or trick that I use not only with work, but also with my friends, too, because I'm trying to be more in tune to this. I've always been wired as a leader. I'm the type of leader where my brain, when someone comes to me with a question or a problem, my brain immediately skips to and how do we fix it? How do we move on? How do we figure out how we fix it? And I have learned through the years and gotten feedback that I got to go through each step of the process. I can't jump to, okay, fix it woman. Because actually I realize that sometimes you do people a disservice because you're trying to fix it for them or you're trying to tell the leader what to do when actually you need to influence them and you need to coach them so that they come to the solution on their own because then they'll own it and it'll be a better outcome. So what I try to do is in the beginning, I will ask, I'll say, okay, what do you want from me? And what do you need from me? How can I best help you? Do you just want me to listen? And you just want to vent and you want me to stay here and keep quiet? Or do you want me to try to run into fear and, you know, be a buffer? Or do you want me to help you think through some suggestions or ideas? And because sometimes, even myself, I don't want you to do anything. I just need someone that I trust that I can vent to. And I just want you to sit there and listen. And that's okay.
0: I'm just thinking of an interaction I've been having recently with a client and how I juxtaposed that with something someone did to me. I was going through something and feeling raw about a business deal. Turned out as it should, but sometimes even the best outcomes don't feel good. And it was not helpful for people to say, oh, it's all for the best. Like, I know that, but it feels stinky right now. So being attentive to not telling people how they should feel or minimizing that this transition that they're going through for them is emotionally challenging, even though it'll all work out. Many of us know it's going to work out, but it feels bad.
1: And I think sometimes we unintentionally do that, right? Because we're all human. For the most part, I like to think people are helpful and nice and kind. You know, they genuinely want to help you. But I do think sometimes we unintentionally, by the way that we respond, you, you're not making the person feel good. So the example that I always come to, and, I, and that's not to be morbid, but usually I find in instances of death, when someone is experiencing death, when someone says, oh, they're in a better place. I'm like, oh, my God, that is probably the worst thing that you can say, because I'm like, you know what? I know you meant well. That wasn't helpful. That wasn't what I needed to hear in that moment, right? I know it came from a good place and I know you didn't mean it that way, but being on the receiving end of that, that's why I said sometimes it's just good to listen and not jump to, okay, the solution phase without going through the steps and also doing it in a way so that they can come to the solution that works best for them for
0: themselves. Which is different than what you might want. You might want or what you might want for them. Yeah, I think that's an interesting distinction, too. I hear myself often saying, I wish you were feeling as excited about this thing as I am. How do I help you get there to see this positive future? Because we're not feeling the same thing right now. Right.
1: Just because it's important to you or just because you're passionate about it doesn't mean that it's important to me or I'm passionate about it. And that's okay. We have to meet each other, right? I need to come along a little bit, and that person to come along, and hopefully we can meet each other and find some
0: happy medium or compromise. And what you're saying, I want to summarize it just because I think it's such an important point in the listening and hearing that what other people need may be different than what you want to give or what you would need in the same situation. That's right. So the inquiry, "What can I do to support you right now?" is really crucial. I have no idea what someone needs when they lose a family member or a pet or a job. I know what I might need or how I might feel, but often mine is different than theirs. That's right. Let's move then from empathy, sympathy to inclusion and inclusivity. From your perspective, what does inclusive leadership look like and how can we prepare leaders to embrace it, tying back into the hybrid and remote work environment?
1: So let me first start off by level setting, because when you hear inclusive leader, what I have recognized is that that means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. For me, when I say inclusive leader, what I mean is, is that it's a leader that is creating a work environment or a workplace in which everybody there feels like they're being respected, that they're being treated equally and fairly, that everybody has equal access to opportunities and resources and everybody feels some type of connection to the organization where they can show up and bring their best self to work, like do, do their best work and bring the best version of themselves to work, whatever that is. That's hard. I mean, when you really unpack that and think about that, that is not easy to do. Even the best leaders, it's a constant work in progress, right? But that's not easy to do. That's it's a very difficult task. So when I think of, and when I say inclusive leader, that's how I'm defining that. When I think back and reflect back over the past two, two and a half years, we always have these buzzwords or, you know, there's always things that are hot in the community, right? Whether it's the DEI community, the HR community, inclusive leadership or being an inclusive leader was one of those, right? And so when I reflect back on organizations and what they've done and progress that's been made or either not made, one of the things that I kind of hone in on is bias, right? So in the beginning, in 2020, right after the unfortunate death of George Floyd, the light was shown on these issues within corporate America. A lot of employees were bringing their employers to task and demanding changes and holding them accountable, which I think is great. However, where I do think some organizations fell short is that For some, they approached it as almost like a one-and-done, check-the-box exercise. So a lot of employers did unconscious bias training or some type of bias training, which is great. And for some, that was probably needed, especially if you're early on in your DEI journey. But it can't be a one-and-done. You can't just put all of that on training, saying, oh, we're going to go out, we're going to do all this training, and then we're going to be good, and then expect a behavior change. Because That's what it is. You have to take actions that are going to produce and create a sustainable behavior change. That's what's key. And so while training is helpful and needed and good, that can't be the only thing that you do. And for some organizations, it was a check the box exercise and that was the only thing that they did. They ran out and if you were a trainer or someone that delivered these types of programs, it was great. But you were busy, you got business, you're making money, right? And so that's what a lot of organizations did. So the approach that I like to do is in addition to the training, we also need to think about how we enable our leaders to adapt and also maintain inclusive behaviors in how they lead so that it's sustainable, right? And so there are three ways that I think organizations can do this for their leaders. So first and foremost, you need to review your practices, your programs and your policies that you have in place and try to remove any unintended bias that exists within the policy. So a very easy, simple example is leave policy. Many organizations have begun to change their, for example, it used to be called maternity leave or they had two separate policies. Returning and paternity, right? But within the LGBTQ community, that's not going to work, depending on how you identify. And so a lot of organizations have changed it to a parental leave policy, which is a lot more inclusive. Another example is with job descriptions, reviewing and looking at your language that you have in job descriptions to say, is it gender neutral language in your job postings and with job descriptions? So all these little things in all of our processes, programs, and policies, reviewing them so that it's neutral and you're taking out the bias. That's first. Second, how do you make inclusive behaviors more actionable? So instead of just training and telling managers what to do, providing them with examples to show how inclusive behaviors can be embedded in how they lead in their general leadership practices. And the third is, again, using examples, but showing how it applies to them personally, and then also showing what the impact is by being an inclusive leader and showing them that the impact is that you will actually come to a better solution or come to a a better result. And also show them how not being a non-inclusive leader and how those behaviors lead to unintended consequences or having potentially a negative impact on your organization. The key message here is embed it into what you're doing. So yes, do the training and actually tell the leaders, but then also embed it into everything that you do so that it becomes you know second nature and natural. Provide examples of what best practice or an inclusive leader looks like and doesn't look like. And make the example specific to your organization and or your line of
0: business. Do you use stories in that? I'm just thinking of examples of what's the impact to a real person down the hall when someone was not inclusive? What's the real impact to someone, an LGBT leader, when they realize that the parental leave policy is, in fact, supportive of them and how that changes their engagement with the organization?
1: Absolutely. I'll give you an example from my prior employer. This past summer, as you know, Roe v. Wade was overturned. And so I was very sensitive to not necessarily taking a side and being respectful of positions on either side with regards to pro-choice and abortion. But one of the things that my team and I did at my prior employer, is, and it was something very simple, but it was based off a real story and an example that someone shared with me that happened a few years prior when I wasn't there. When I heard this story, it really resonated and hit me. And I said, what can we do to show that we're being supportive and we're acknowledging and recognizing it without necessarily taking a point of view or a side on the issue? And so what the outcome of the result of that was, we changed our bereavement leave policy. As you know, bereavement leave, is either your immediate family, Some policies might do your extended family, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, et cetera. What we added to our bereavement policy was loss of pregnancy because someone had shared a story with me of an employee years prior who was very far along in their pregnancy. Unfortunately, they lost the baby. But at the time, the way the bereavement leave was defined, the bereavement leave didn't apply to them. Hearing that story and that resonating, and always trying to have an inclusive mindset, the team and I changed the bereavement leave policy. And can I just tell you the amount of feedback that I got from employees that I knew felt very strongly on both sides of that argument. Those that were pro-choice, those that were pro white. I got a tremendous amount of positive feedback from both and you know, both employees with, you know, both peers. So that's just, you know, that's just one example. But It's really being intentional. There goes that word again, right? And reviewing your practices, your policies, how you operate, removing out any bias, unintended consequences, and then also embedding it into everyday practices. So you'd be amazed at how many leaders to this day don't have regularly scheduled one-on-one update meetings with their employees. There were some that because of the pandemic and we were remote, they hurried up and said, oh, you know, we're going to, I'm going to have check-ins once a week or every day to just check in to see everybody's well, which was great. But then two years, two and a half years later, some of them reverted back to their old behavior, their old processes, right? But if you are a manager of people or a team and you don't have a, I'm not talking about a team meeting. I mean a one-on-one meeting with every employee that's on your team. That actually is a problem. That's not good making little suggestions to managers rather and leaders around how they're leading and operating little things like that. Like you have regular check-ins with your employees. Do you get to know your employee? Do you understand who they are outside of work? Do you ask them what their needs are? Do you ask them what they want to be when they grow up? Do you have career conversations with them outside of the once or twice a year when you have their evaluation and review? All these little things like that, go a long way. When you're done with a major pitch for a project or a, a major deal or a particular matter or a case with an employee, I work at a law firm, but when you're done with these major projects and milestones, do you do like a post or a debrief with the team to say what went well, what could we have done differently and what are we going to do next time so that we can be even better and more effective in winning this? All these little small changes in how you manage and lead. Go a long way. It will make a difference in terms of being a more inclusive leader. And
0: that sounds like that's again back to the intentionality, whether I'm remote, hybrid, or all in the office, I still need to be connecting with my people. Some of this sounds like the Gallup Q12 for basic employee engagement. Am I showing that I care about them as a human being, showing that I care about their career? Not just, did you get the project done? That's right. And then integrating learning into everything we do.
1: In one respect, when I hear that and when I think about it, some people feel like, wow, shouldn't that be common sense? But then for others, you have to be intentional in order for it to be top of mind. And the more you do it, that translates to changing behavior. And if you can change your behavior, then it becomes sustainable. I remember, was it 90 days? I think it's 90 days. You have to do something consecutively for 90 days in order for it to become a habit. So there you go.
0: For CPC, much of your insistence on de i is rooted in the mission of the organization. Can you help our listeners understand a little more how your organization is making a difference in the communities that you touch so it's not just my employees get the benefit of it, but our whole community benefits from a sense of inclusivity.
1: Absolutely. So as we mentioned it at the beginning at the top, we're CDFI and we're affordable housing lender within the multifamily house lot. Given the nature of our business and what we do, we focus on underrepresented communities. It's part of who we are. It's part of our corpus. So we deploy capital through our equity platform. We do construction lending, and we also do mortgage lending. Back in, I believe it was 2020, we started something called the ACCESS program. And so through our ACCESS program, we support and we target black and brown developers who have historically been underrepresented and have experienced barriers to entry within the real estate development space. So we created this ACCESS program to address that. And through this program, we provide funding, education and other resources so that they can compete in the real estate development market. In doing this, this also helps us address the racial wealth gap that's going on in this country as well, right? One way to build wealth is through housing. Second, as part of our environmental and sustainability goals, we CPC is a recipient of the Climate Friendly Homes Fund. And so what that means is that we've been given grant money, so that we can electrify our properties over the next four years, thereby moving closer to our goals around carbon and child. It's embedded in our business. It's embedded in the work that we do in the underrepresented communities that we serve.
0: It sounds like it's not just then an HR strategy. It is in your policies, but not just HR policies, business policies, mission statement where you invest your money reflects it. The people you attract are committed to it. Your leaders are committed to it.
1: Absolutely, so what I would say is we're nonprofit and like most nonprofits, there's a mission. Most people who choose to work for nonprofit or within the nonprofit sector, they do so because there's some type of connection to the mission, regardless of your level, you know, your role, whether you're in finance, marketing, sales, HR, IT. What I have found, particularly at CPC, regardless of what you do, there is a connection to the mission of this organization and to the work that we do. That then translates into what we were talking about before around engagement. And from a DEI perspective, you know, one of our goals is that we want to make sure that as an organization, we reflect the communities and the stakeholders that we serve, whether it's lending institutions, developers, people that need our lending, we want to make sure that we are reflective of all those stakeholders that we serve within those underrepresented communities. And so it doesn't matter what your role is and what you do. Everyone here understands that what I do day to day, regardless of what function and thing, contributes to that, contributes to building wealth, contributes to access to capital, contributes to um, helping people with construction lending, mortgage lending. They see that connection and they see how what they do contributes to that broader bowl and that broader objective. For me personally, I have talked about in the past around the three peaks. I refer to it as the three P's, your purpose, your passion, and your profession. And I feel when I made the transition and joined CPC, I feel like those three things have aligned for me. I am passionate about what I do. I love HR. I love focusing on, you know, particularly doing HR through a DEI lens. I'm passionate about that. You know, I've done HR in a number of different organizations and across multiple sectors, and so my purpose. I feel like now I finally got it right. All three have aligned and I am clear in what my purpose is and in the work that I do and in the way that I help not only the community, the employees of CPC, but also beyond that and outside of that, whether it's my colleagues, of course, the HR community or anywhere else, I feel like those three have aligned. And when you have that alignment, I always tell young people, try to get that alignment as early as you can in your career because you spend a lot of years working and so it's important that you love what you do those
0: 3p's i think many of the employees here if not all of them have that my assumption is over your career the 3p's for you may have changed and or you may have fallen out of alignment with them over different blocks of time just cuz it's a luxury to love what you do Over
1: my career, it's not that it changed, but that I didn't have all three at the same time. There wasn't that alone. At different points in my career, I might have had one. You know, I may have had two. But this is the first time where I can say I have all three.
0: How did you go about figuring out even what they were? We talk to young leaders and it's surprising. We we come out of college and we have a major and we get a job and we get married and we have kids. And then we spend all of our time making sure everybody else's needs are met. It's been interesting working with mid-career grad students and I ask them what their vision is or what their purpose is. And it's it's a question that they've never considered because they're busy getting done the stuff that good people do. Right. Tell us a little bit about that journey for you.
1: So my journey was through the experiences where I grew up, how I grew up. So as I mentioned before, you know, I am an African-American woman. I am a woman of color. I am from New York. I actually grew up and went to school on Long island. I am a product of Catholic schools and my elementary school and middle school, I was one of one. I was the only Black person in my class. There were only three individuals of color in my class. And so at that point in my life, I didn't know that what it was called at the time, but that's when I really understood difference, diversity, and that I was different. I would say it was a little bit later on in my life where I learned to appreciate and understand the power that is with being different and how to leverage and appreciate and welcome that diversity later on in in my career, really understanding what inclusion means and that it was okay that I didn't have to change or dim my light to make someone else feel comfortable or change who I authentically was in order to be able to fit in, integrate into a particular space or particular circle. The initial experiences around DEI started when I was an adolescent in school and being in a Catholic school when I wasn't Catholic and being the only black person in my class, really understanding, okay, I'm different and picking up on different things. So that was the, the first, in terms of my passion around EI, that's where it started. Fast forward my profession. So I am actually an accountant by training. My degree, my undergraduate degree is in accounting. You know, people just like, how do you go from accounting to HR? I'll tell you the short story. After working for a public accounting firm for a couple of years, I realized I didn't want to be an auditor but there was joy and there were things that I really enjoyed about the job. Helping people solve things. So like when you're an auditor and you're part of an engagement team and you go to the client, you're auditing their financials, some of them have problems, you're working with the controller and the CFO to help bring solutions and solve some of their financial problems. The nature of doing that, I enjoy being client-facing and working with the leader on a problem or a challenge and helping them think it through and figure it out. I also was very involved in campus recruitment and in mentoring. And what I realized when I took a step back, I said, all of these things kind of fall under this umbrella called HR. But I really didn't understand that function at the time. I just knew these are the things I like about this job. These are the things not so much. And so I was fortunate enough, opportunity, the stars aligned, and I was presented with an opportunity, my first HR role at another public accounting firm. And so I could have asked for a better transition, and entree into the HR field, because I went to an organization where I understood the industry, I understood the business, but I was just learning a new function. So that is where I found the profession. I found my joy. I... I loved what I did. And then I started to learn more around all the different facets of the HR function. And then through that led to my passion or my purpose rather. And so over time, I realized this is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is how I can continue to help people in doing something that I really enjoy professionally with this diversity, equity, and inclusion component to it, being a African-American woman as well. Through the experiences and at those different points in my life, that's where the piece came about.
0: So it unfolded then kind of organically.
1: Yes. And then look,
0: it's hard for young people. That's why I try not to,
1: what do you want to do? Or, you know, what's your vision? Like, that's a very overwhelming question for someone, especially when you're young, right? And so I try to approach it or help them get to that differently. And so you ask them a series of questions to understand what brings them joy? What are they passionate about? I don't mean just at work. I just mean in general. And then through that, you try to help them find is there a way where you can make that your profession, where you make money, where you make a living? And then eventually the purpose will come. I think the purpose has to come with age. (laughs) Like you, you gotta live life a little bit to really understand what your purpose is and why you're here. I'm not the most religious person, but I am spiritual in that I truly believe that everything happens for a reason. You may not recognize it in the moment when it's happening, but when you reflect back on it, you say, okay, that's why that happened. This is the lesson that I'm supposed to learn and take from that. Or everything that I've been through and experience has brought me to this place. How can I leverage the lessons and the experiences that I've been through to either address a problem, a solution, or deal with whatever I'm dealing with right now.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah. I want to add one thing that was maybe unique for me, like you public accounting background. I kept thinking this isn't my thing. Consulting isn't my thing. I was on the consulting side. And so I kept trying to leave and, Felt like every time I had a different plan, I kept getting sucked back into to this consulting space. And so there was something about where I thought I should be and what my reality turned into to the point that things work out the way they should. I didn't have enough vision to know where I should be, but something about the world unfolded in a way that I got hit over the head enough times that as I end up being fairly mature in my career, I'm still doing consulting. So I think I won't get to escape it <laughs> in this lifetime.
1: You know, it's the same thing with my finance and accounting background. Like, yes, I didn't want to do that for a living, but I will tell you, I have it to fall back on. I leverage it. It helps open a lot of doors. It provides credibility because I am able to engage business leaders. I understand the business. I understand the p and I understand finances. I'm able to talk their lingo, if you will. So while I'm not an accountant, I've come to recognize that it's a gift because that laid the foundation and I have that background that I can incorporate
0: and bring to be a better HR leader. It resonates. Those things we thought we were putting behind us just become another tool in our repertoire because I started in finance. So I had no people skills. Not only was I not a coach and a leadership development person, I had zero skills. I was good with numbers. I tutored kids in math and calculus. You said tutor kids? That's a people skill. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I could talk to people if I had a script <laughs> and it had numbers in it. It was I I was a little sister in a fraternity, and that was mainly so I could be behind the bar. So I had an activity to do that allowed me to have conversation. Give me a beer. Okay, here you go. I really needed to hone some basic skills, which I have over time. But to your point, all of that developing I had to do now allows me to work with engineers and scientists really effectively and physicians and people in math professions who are going through the same challenges I went through that just... I never learned that stuff. That wasn't part of my training early on, but it had to be to survive in the workplace. As we're wrapping up, what trainings, tools, and frameworks do you see playing a key role in helping leaders better navigate this hybrid landscape and be more successful?
1: So as we talked about before training, and I did mention training is helpful and we should do training, but it has to be more in addition to that. One of the things that we have done here at CPC is that we have put all of our leaders through leading hybrid teams to provide them with those tools and resources and support. And so as part of those trainings, we provide them with frameworks. And so there are two that come to mind as part of that. So one of them is the four C's, which, which speak to charter, connection, community, and communication. And so by charter, we mean, it goes back to what I said before around communication, clarifying upfront how the team will work together in this new way of working and in this new environment. When I talk about connection, again, before, when I talked about managers checking in, reaching out, communicating, and trying to figure out how best to connect with their people. So establishing and or building both strong relationships with each individual person on your team. Community. So building a positive environment that speaks to culture, right? People want a sense of community. They need to feel a sense of connection and community at work. And then lastly, communication. Understanding different communication styles and how people communicate best, whether that's a call, virtually, email, et cetera. The other framework that we provide our leaders as well is based off of the SBIS model. So this speaks to when they have to provide feedback to employees, right? And so being specific upfront around providing an example, when you're giving them the feedback, what is the feedback that you have for the employee and providing example to employees so they can put it into context. Also talking about the behavior. What was the positive or good behavior that they should continue to leverage versus what is the behavior that they may need to change or do differently? Also being clear around the impact. What impact is your behavior having? And this is why you need to, this is why you should continue this behavior, or this is why you might need to change it because of the impact that it's having on others that you may not realize or be mindful of. And then lastly, bringing the employee along in the solution and then sharing what that solution is, whether that's sharing it with the rest of the team or whether that's sharing it with your peers and your colleagues, because you're not in this alone. All the managers and leaders are struggling to try to figure out how to navigate this new way of working and this new hybrid environment, right? And so there's something in community and collectively coming together to say, well, this is what I dealt with and here's how we handled it. Oh, you might want to try this. This works really well for us and here's why.
0: Thank you. I love frameworks because it gives us the option to do something that's repeatable. This has been very helpful. Can you share with our listeners one or two recommendations to get them started in embracing hybrid and inclusive leadership practices to move forward?
1: Yep, I got two. The first one was what I mentioned before, do an audit or do a review of your programs, your processes, and your policies. Training is not enough. If you just train, the behaviors of your leaders will not change. Make sure that any changes that you're making, that you embed it into everything that you're doing so that this way it doesn't feel like a heavy lift, and it becomes natural and then the behavior will start to change. And then secondly, listen to your employees. talk to them, listen to their experiences at your organization because that will then help shape the plan or the approach that you take to implement whatever your plan or your approach is to address hybrid working and being an inclusive leader, ask your employees and listen to their experiences because then that provide input into what you're going to do.
0: And the third one I'll say is be intentional.
1: Yes, intentional and flexible. Intentional and provide flexibility. Meet your employees where you're at. And truth be told, it works both ways because if you ask these leaders and these
0: managers, guess what? They need some form of flexibility for themselves as well. Oh yeah, we all do. Monique, thank you. This has been fabulous. How would our listeners get in touch with you, learn more from you?
1: So they can probably, the best way to reach me is through LinkedIn. Or you can call CPC. We're headquartered in New York City, right by Grand Central Station. So if you'll call the main number, they'll actually over to me or through LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. And so I try to respond within two to three days, within 48 hours. But you can reach out, send me a message, and I'll definitely respond.
0: And I assume your name is Monique Jefferson on LinkedIn like it is in reality. Yes, actually, I think I had my middle initials, so I believe it's Monique D Is in dog, Monique D Jefferson. Beautiful. Thank you. I want to thank our sponsor, Conex Partners. To find out more about becoming a Conex member or joining this exclusive community, please search connexpartners.com. And for daily updates and wisdom from our guests, please follow us on Mastodon. We are at InnoLeader. At INNO Leader.